It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, Moving Forward in Truth and Love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of Christianity. It is what defines the truth of the faith. Uh, Without it, Jesus becomes a sort of enigmatic historical religious figure who performed miracles of healing and had incredible insight into the human soul. But because of the resurrection, the Bible says Christians can lead changed lives, powerful lives, lives filled with ultimate purpose, defined by a resurrected Savior living out heaven on earth. World-renowned theologian and minister Dr. Timothy Keller has written a new book on the resurrection and why Christian churches should preach more on its power and when uh, that the power of the resurrection, that is. And when they don't, the faithful are really missing out on truly understanding the gospel. And we are in this season of Lent, and so a resurrected Savior is what is being reflected on in these weeks leading up to Easter, which commemorates and celebrates uh, Jesus rising from the dead. Dr. Keller's book is called Hope in Times of Fear, the Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter, and he joins me now. Welcome, Dr. Keller. I'm so glad to be with you again and see you again, (laughs) Lauren. Well, it's really wonderful to to see you, and I know that the 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 question of the day about you right now is how is your health? Because about a year ago, uh, you kind of um, we 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 learned that you had pancreatic cancer, and so everybody wants an update of uh, how how things are going. How are you? Yes, and actually, this is uh, germane to the book, as we will say in a minute, but. In May of last year, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, um, and I was—I um, went into chemotherapy, and I've had uh, nine, almost ten months of chemotherapy, and it's gone uh, unusually well. Uh, that could change any time, so we are certainly living—you might say—from scan to scan because it's <laughs> anyone who has had cancer or knows someone with cancer knows that every three months you get scanned, and that's when you find out how things are. And so um, uh, right now things are going quite well, but we, we know that uh, the cancer is still there. Uh, so definitely the treatment has been pretty effective, unusually effective. And it's has given me more time to write and actually to have enough quality of life that I can come and talk to you. Well, and we certainly appreciate that. And I'm so glad about that. Uh, the in the preface you talk about the cancer how do you tie in the cancer um and the resurrection of jesus well i had started writing the book it was going to be a kind of um companion book to uh the my book on christmas so i was going to write a book on easter uh and the resurrection and so i started writing the book and it was i'm trying to remember it was maybe a third done or so and then first the pink pandemic hit and there was death all around and there was lots of anxiety and a lot of fear about the future. And then in May, I, I also have found I had cancer. And of course, uh, so what's the relevance of the resurrection? Okay. Let me, let me put it to you in a nutshell. I came to realize 
that if Jesus Christ actually was raised from the dead, I mean, really raised from the dead, that he got up out of the tomb, he walked out, the women saw him, he appeared to his disciples. If all that actually happened, everything's going to be okay. I mean, eventually everything's going to be okay. I pancreatic cancer, I'm going to be okay. Um, the world eventually will be okay. So that's, <laughs> it couldn't be more relevant to <laughs> things like the pandemic where everybody felt like the world's falling apart or things like cancer where Kathy and I felt like, you know, our lives are coming to an end. And um, yeah, the resurrection, if, if it happened, then there's all the hope in the world. And the hope, I mean, if people who are listening to this are not Christians, the hope is not necessarily that all of a sudden you won't be, you'll be cancer free, but that there is hope into eternity. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course the word resurrection tells you what that means. I mean, there is no resurrection unless there's a death. <laughs> See, um, and that's one of the themes of Christianity. So for example, let's, let's go to, to, to uh, uh, a, a smaller uh, level. When I say smaller, I mean a, a lighter level. If somebody wrongs me, does something wrong to me, even my wife, somebody wrongs me, um, the most natural thing to do is to go confront them and scratch their eyes out and make them feel bad. Okay. Or I could forgive them. Now, if I forgive mm -hmm. them, um, that's like a death. It feels like a death because I, I want to scratch their eyes out. But if instead I go yeah. to the person or to my wife, actually, for example, and say, hey, um, that hurt me, but, you know, all right, I, uh, that's all right. I forgive you. you know, I really want to make things right. Now, if I go and scratch your eyes out, which means I don't experience the death, that person is probably going to not experience a resurrection. That is, they're not going to, they're, they're probably not going to admit they've done anything wrong. They're just going to get set in their ways. And maybe the relationship mm -hmm. will go away. But if I experience the death, you might say, of forgiveness, then the other person is more likely to experience the resurrection of change and more likely to experience the resurrection of a, a healed relationship. And it works that way across the board. I will not experience the resurrection that is the absolute bliss of a perfect body, uh, seeing the perfect love in the face of Jesus Christ that I've been looking for in everything all my life. I can't get that except through death. And the world is actually, even, um, in a sense, die as a, in order to be renewed and eventually everything goes right. So go ahead. Sorry. You know, one of the things you talk about early in the book about how churches kind of are, sort of leave a lot of power on the, on, the, on the table, you know, because they don't talk about the resurrection as much mm -hmm. as probably they should, except, of course, at Easter. Why, why is that? Uh, that's a good question, actually. There's a place... I've got a systematic theology on my shelf right in here, and systematic theology is a, a summary of Christian beliefs. Uh, it's a classic one by a guy named Charles Hodge, who taught at Princeton years ago. I think I mentioned this in the book. Charles Hodge has 120 pages on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and then four pages on the resurrection. <laughs> like, and I think mm. people don't know what to do with it, because it. I think a lot of people think of it as just a kind of giant magic trick that by which God showed mm. that Jesus is really the son of God or uh, not insignificant. You know, some people would say, ah, oh, it proved that Jesus was, was the son of God, or it proves that there's a God. But in that case, it just becomes kind of a, like I said, a, a sign, a magic sign 
of supernatural power. But what the Bible actually teaches is that when Jesus rose from the dead uh, and ascended into heaven, he began to reign. And I know this is, this is uh, a lot of your listeners are going to say, what? But the Bible actually says that when you're, that Jesus Christ brought the power of the new creation of the future into the present. At the end of time, everything's going to be made right. Every tear is going to be wiped away. All evil and suffering is going to be over. Uh, death is going to be no more. Okay? But when Jesus rose from the dead, in a sense defeated death, he brought some of that power into the present. So that when you worship not just a, a, a dead teacher and say, I'm going to follow his ethical teacher, but instead you put your faith in a risen Lord, he's alive now. So he's not like following Confucius or someone like that. No, no, no offense to Confucius, but he's gone. And all you're really getting is his teaching. But when you put your, your faith in Christ, he's a living, raised Savior. He comes into your life with the Holy Spirit, which is the power of the age to come, the Bible says. That comes into your life and starts to, not fully, but partially starts to renew you now. And therefore, the resurrection is a, a way for Jesus Christ to start bringing the life-renewing, world-renewing power of the future into the present and into your life. Now, once you realize that and you begin to say, okay, now how do I experience death and resurrection now and eventually later, um, then it suddenly becomes a whole different thing. Then, But if you just think of the resurrection as kind of supernatural sign that God is real or something like that, as, as great as that is, mm -hmm. you don't know what to do about it. In other words, at, when Easter is over, we celebrate it, then you put it, sort of put it in the drawer and you don't know what to do about it. And I, I'm trying to change that with this. The, well, that's, that's very interesting because I remember um, you said to me once years ago, and when I asked you about a friend of mine who said, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, why is there still pain and suffering? Why is there uh, still... Um, um, all of these bad things that happen in the world and wars and everything. You talked about this being sort of the overlap of the ages that were, were between the two appearances yeah. of Jesus. Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. In fact, I'm, you have a great memory. I'm just, I'm, I'm always, <laughs> always grateful when people remember things like that. Uh, <laughs> let me give you an example. What the overlap of the ages means that whereas the old age of death is still here, the new age, uh, the future age of perfect life has been brought into the future partially, but not fully. So what you have is, and when a person says, uh, when a person says, well, you know, if, you know, the resurrection happened, God is real, why are all these bad things happening? Consider reading, it's a big, thick book, but I don't have it here. Consider reading the, a book by Tom Holland. It's a new book. He's a British writer, and it's a book called Dominion. And it's about how the Christian, how Christianity revolutionized the West. He, he, uh, Tom. Holland, here's an example. Tom Holland originally uh, wrote a lot about the Greeks and the Romans. He was fascinated with them, the ancient Greeks and Romans. But as he really got deeply mm -hmm. into them and really got to know them, he came to realize that they despised the poor, they despised the weak, that they, they were, they, uh, the idea that you should take care of. Uh, the poor and the marginal was just ludicrous to them. And, and Tom Holland, who wasn't a Christian, you know, he, like most British, he was raised in the Church of England, but he kind of walked away from it. He began to realize, he said, what changed? I mean, why, why am I so different? 
And he actually began to realize that everywhere in the world, the idea of taking care of the poor and taking care of the marginal and hospitals and orphanages and all that stuff, that nobody believed that was important. But he says, along came Christianity, mm-hmm. which took the Hebrew Bible, added the New Testament to it. And they came up with this idea that, you know, we serve a savior who, though he was rich, he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. Mm-hmm. We, we serve a savior who, though he was glorious and powerful, lost his power to come in. And so the idea that weakness and sacrifice was not dishonorable, which is the way it was in every other culture in the world, but actually the right way to go, the, 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 the paradigm for real life, which is sacrificial service for others and for all others, not just your own tribe and not your own class, not your own people. Tom Holland realizes that revolutionized the world. That was a completely new idea. When Jesus rose from the dead and the church started, that was a whole new idea. Now, so that person who says, well, why do all these bad things happen if Jesus Christ came? The answer is, do you like orphanages? Do you like hospitals? Do you like caring for the poor? You realize how much good is happening in the world today because the Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's not, it hasn't healed everything at all. It hasn't, it, but we're, we're, mm-hmm. it's an overlap of the ages. It's not like, it's not like the old age is over and the new age has begun. It's like the old age and the new age overlap. And the resurrection is a sign that even though we still live in a land of death, there is a, there are new powers of life available to us spiritually and physically. And that's why I want to say, actually, because of Jesus Christ, the world is a lot better, a whole lot better. If you don't believe it, read the 500-page book by Tom Holland called Dominion. It's really great. I will actually get that what, he, right after I read the 600-page book by uh, N.T. Wright. <laughs> well, he's not – by the way, Tom Holland's not a believer, though he's uh, very appreciative of Christianity. And he actually does believe that uh, – he says wokeness, for example. He, says, he actually has a chapter on wokeness. He says where we care about mm-hmm. the marginal, we care about the victim, we care about the outsider – and all that. So he says that he says that is. I hate to say it. He says that's Christianity. If it wasn't for Christianity, you wouldn't be woke. And he's not wow. a Christian believer. He's trying to say that the whole idea that the the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He says that came from a guy named Jesus. So anyway. Wow. Listen, we're gonna we're gonna take a a, um, a break right, right real quick on Lighthouse Faith Podcast because I want to talk about the basic idea that. You know, is there proof of the resurrection? Because it, before you actually, you know glean its power, you've got to believe actually that it happened. So we're going to come back and talk about that in a minute with Dr. Timothy Keller. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Okay, we're back at Lighthouse Faith with Dr. Timothy Keller talking about his book, um, for Easter, it's called Hope in the Times of Fear, and it's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the things you talk about, Tim, is saying, you know, before you really understand the power or even live out the power of the resurrection, you've got to believe that it actually happened. Is there proof? Um, and I hate to say the word scientific proof, because at a certain point, you're just going to have to have faith. But is there more, is there kind of some kind of proof that the resurrection actually happened? There's a lot of evidence. Um, I think as soon as you ask the question, you need to, first of all, say, um, can you prove anything happened in history at all? Can you prove anything happened in history the way you can prove that two plus two equals four? Or the way mm-hmm. you can prove that that uh, a particular chemical, you know, melt, a, a particular solid melts at a certain, you know, 
temperature. So, and the answer is you can prove things in a laboratory and you can prove things through a mathematical theorem um, in ways you can't prove that human rights exist. You actually can't prove that um, uh, almost anything in history happened. Because you can mm-hmm. always say, well, isn't there a little bit of doubt that, you know, that could have been fabricated, it could have been a conspiracy or something like that. So, uh, on the other hand, do you not live with certainty about an awful lot of things that have happened in history? We do. We assume all kinds of things have happened. And we're certain about it, even though we can't prove any of it. Now, N.T. Wright, um, <laughs> you already mentioned his name went by. Uh, Tom Wright, uh, who's something of a friend of mine, has written on for the last 20 years on the resurrection, the best books on how the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is very, very strong, very strong. He admitted, admits you can't prove mm-hmm. anything from history the way you can prove something in the lab. Secondly, he, he admits that um, you, you can't say every rational person has to believe this. And there's, But he just makes the case so strongly that he said, you know, it's, it's about as well as attested as anything especially from ancient history and more well-attested than most things in ancient history. Mm-hmm. And therefore there's really good reasons to believe it. Now, for me, the way you get to certainty is, is a, you get to the place of saying there's a, there's plenty of good reasons to believe it. And on the basis of that, I then put my faith in Christ. Then if he actually shows up in my experience, then you know what, that to me, that ends up bringing about a proof that he's risen. There really is such a thing as a, a, an assurance you can get to. But if you're looking for rational, absolute empirical proof, no. But frankly, most of the things you're sure of in life, you can't prove either. Uh, one, one philosophy professor once in one class I was in actually said to me, I remember, and says, you cannot prove that you're not a butterfly dreaming you're a boy. <laughs> and and uh, you cannot prove that. And, and then, but and, and that was long before the Matrix came along, <laughs> the movie. I mean, so um, yeah, there is a sense that's some which, serious navel gazing, uh, I think. <laughs> uh, well, yes, and that's, that's right because what you want to say is if you really push the empirical proof thing too much and say I don't, I won't believe in God unless you can empirically, scientifically, logically prove him. I won't believe in the resurrection. Then you have the problem of realizing well, there's an awful lot of the things that we actually have certainty about that technically we can't prove. Like your cognitive faculties work, your memory works, that, you know, that that sort of thing. I mean, a philosopher will tell you, you don't say, I believe there's a tree in my front yard. You say there's a tree in my front yard, even though technically you can't prove it. So um, anyway, what I'm trying to say is you don't prove that the resurrection, but there's a huge amount of evidence, as much as for almost anything in the ancient that ever happened. And then once you get to the place where you say, hey, that looks like it really probably happened, then you can actually try to reach out to Jesus. Say, well, if he's risen, then he's going to come into my life, and that's, that's what's happened to me. So at this point, am I sure the resurrection happened? Yes. It's yeah. a combination. One of the of things that people go ask, though, is that, is that why do I need a savior? And this is one of the basic questions that most secular people ask, even Christians ask, why do I need a savior? I'm pretty good on my own. Why do I need one? Um. A Christian answer would be that virtually no one I know um, when they're younger, that's maybe not true. Most people um, 
live with the illusion of self-sufficiency. I, I may give you the most um, obvious example is all of my life, I always, I've I, I talked to the cancer patients who said the same thing. All my life, I always said, I know I'm going to die. And, and, and also, when you yeah. get to the age of 70, you need to realize it won't be long. But when you actually get cancer and know that you are very likely to die soon, you suddenly realize, I didn't believe it. I was actually in denial. I actually am in denial mm. of my mortality. I mean, it'll be, it'll be such a shock to say, wait a minute, how could I have been in denial about this? I realized mm. that I was living deep, deep down inside. I just don't believe I'm going to die. I just don't believe it. You know, I say it up here mentally, but down here I don't. Yeah. Um, I always thought I was perfectly sufficient. I can sort things out. But when you actually get cancer, you realize you, you are out of control of your life. In fact, you always were. You begin to realize you always were. Uh, you could have slipped on a banana mm-hmm. peel and be dead. There's all, And then you start to look back and say, wait a minute, all kinds of stuff. The only reason I, I have any kind of life is because someone behind the scenes was basically watching out for me. I like to think, oh, I'm just a product of my choices. and I got it all sorted. Now you realize we're all helpless. So anyway, I, the Christian answer is, you may not feel like you need a savior until something comes along in your life to take the veil from your eyes that you actually aren't sufficient to, to face life or to live life. If you actually don't feel you need a savior right now, well, then there's no way I can possibly uh, convince you of that. It, it's, it's life that has to show that to you. So otherwise, I would say you, no one ever learned they needed a savior by being told. You're going to have to be shifted. Life yeah. is going to show you. But this whole idea, though, the whole idea of that, one of the things you talk about is that, you know, science really hasn't eradicated evil. And we, we still keep trying to find the solution to evil, um, you know, through technology or through social services or through a lot of, um, you know, programs that say, you know, just, you know, love your neighbor or something. But science can't seem to get rid of evil. Um, isn't that an indication that's, that, that, that we need a savior? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, one of the problems with science alone, to think the science will do it, is that science actually can't really even uh, come to grips with with the reality of evil. I mean, a good example of this is that, some, see, if science is going to deal with evil, you already gave some examples. Some people say, well, you need education. We'll get rid of racism, for example, if we educate people. Or other people would say, yeah. uh, no, it's a matter of sociology. We have to, uh, people are, have not been properly socialized. Uh, so from the early days, we, we need to just let people get to know people of other races. So they have been socialized, they have been educated. Or maybe um, psychology, uh, you might say, maybe they just weren't, they, you weren't raised with enough love in your life. And so that's what now you're trying to compensate for it. Now, here's the problem. I call it the problem of Auschwitz. Why were the Nazis? Mm-hmm. I mean, Kathy and I actually two years ago visited Auschwitz. It was one of the worst experiences of ever. I mean, and I recommend it for anybody. Um, and we, there were there were hundreds <laughs> and hundreds of Nazi soldiers that knew they were that they were slaughtering um, hundreds of thousands of Jews like every week. And just it was unbelievable when you go there and actually imagine so how could they have done that? These were German soldiers. How could they have done that? 
So, okay, give me your theory. So the scientists would say, well, they weren't properly educated. Boy, that trivializes the evil, doesn't it? They weren't educated. Or they would say, well, they, they um, yeah. you know, as soon as you start to give a psychological or sociological or educational answer, you are trivializing what's happened there. Well, then you say, well, maybe they're just evil people themselves. You know, they're not like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they were just terrible people. Well, wait a minute. That's how they, that's how they justified killing the Jews. Because they said the Jews were sub, they weren't like the rest of us. They were subhuman. So if you get rid of that, you don't want to do what they mm-hmm. did to the Jews. And you want, you realize that, that the problem is deeper than psychological or sociological or chemical or whatever. You come to realize, A, there is such a thing as evil in the world. And B, we're all capable of it. Because if you don't, if you don't say that, you trivialize evil or you end up objectifying and, and, and you know, doing to other people what, what the Nazis did to the Jews. And so, see, what I'm trying to say is, no, science cannot even name evil. It can't deal with it. It can't name it. And frankly, you can't, without religious language, you, we, we can't confront it at all. You know, that's the whole basis of the civil rights movement under Martin Luther King Jr. is that, you know, the idea that you can't just um, expect people to change by saying, oh, gee, I could have had a V8. I'm sorry, I was oppressing you. I didn't know that. Um, it really goes so, so much deeper than that. And um, I remember it, it, he talked about, you know, the whole idea that, you know, and you talked about this too once in a sermon about how, you know, you have to go deeper into the faith. I mean, people who have the same faith, you know, a KKK member has the same faith. Uh, Christian has the same faith as um, an African-American Bible-believing uh, Baptist. Um, and I think this is kind of where we are today in terms of, you know, Black Lives Matter. And 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 one of the things that I, I keep saying, and, and I wish that hopefully that maybe you can put some, some, some legs on this, is that if you don't have the gospel, the oppressed really has no alternative than to become the oppressor, you know, in, order, in sort of to work that out, to uh. get to get into like it, right. unless you have that sidetrack of forgiveness where are you going to go what do you know how to how to do how to forgive how do you how do you get that power if somebody who has beat you and and oppressed you um you know one of the things that um td jakes talked about um a few weeks ago he said you know the civil rights movement we had these wonderful hymns we had these hymns of grace a uh, hymns of of praising god and that seems to be missing from a lot of the movements today. And is it the gospel that's missing? Yeah, wow. Uh, first of all, I totally agree with you uh, and where you're going. So I, I'm just going to, uh, uh, the, yeah, I, I, you're asking me a question, but the point is you actually already gave an answer and I'm agreeing with the answer. So let me just kind of help you with the answer. Good. <laughs> okay. Jax is right. Um, totally right. Because... Let's go back. I actually talked about this. It's, it's in the death and resurrection book. If I mm-hmm. uh, seek justice from the perpetrator without also forgiving, see, I can forgive a person in my heart and to say, I'm not yeah. going to try to take revenge. I'm going to try to get justice. See, I could confront the person. I could confront a person for their injustice two ways. One is I could do it basically to hurt them as the way they hurt me, which is vengeance. Mm-hmm. 
The other way I could do it is in my heart I could say, I forgive them because, oh, Lord, you forgave me. So I'm going to confront them for their sake because I don't want them to keep on doing bad things. Secondly, I'm going to confront them for other people's sake so they don't do it to anybody else. I'm going to confront them for the Lord's sake because it's dishonoring to God. I'm going to confront them for justice's sake and truth's sake, but not for my sake. Um, now, the only way you can do that, the only way you can get, have the, the only spiritual resource possible for that is you've got to know that you're a sinner forgiven by Christ through the, say, his own sacrifice. And that humbles you to say, this person wronged me, but I'm going to forgive this person who wronged me before I go and demand justice so that I will not be seeking vengeance, but I will actually be seeking justice. Vengeance is for my sake. Justice is for the sake of the world and for God and even the perpetrator. Now, what T.D. Jakes is talking about is that the original civil rights movement was run by Christians who not only, on the one hand, did believe in sin, but a great book on this is David Chappell's book called The Stone of Hope. It's a history of the civil rights movement. It's an academic book, pretty old, 20 years mm -hmm. old at least, I think. It's a history of the civil rights movement. And what he said was the northern white liberals were telling uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, don't do civil disobedience, don't do um, protest because that's too strong. Just give it time. Be patient. We're evolving. And because Northern liberals mm -hmm. didn't have a Christian doctrine of sin, they thought of human beings as basically good and we're just moving, we're evolving toward higher and higher. Like It's like Star Trek, you know, we're getting better and better and better, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Martin Luther King Jr., the African-American pastors knew, no, wait a minute, a lot Racism, to a great degree, is, a, is because of sin and evil in the heart. People aren't going to give up power unless they're confronted. So, you know, civil disobedience and yeah. sit-ins and things like that, that was really, that was radical stuff. And yet, as they were doing it, they were singing hymns of grace and forgiveness. They weren't screaming at cops and yelling at them and saying, F you. They just weren't doing that. Yeah. So what they were doing was they're forgiving. Yeah. And then demanding justice. And that way they were avoiding vengeance and actually escalating the violence. What T.D. Jakes is where he's totally right. I'm really glad, you know, I don't want to say this, but I'm an older white guy. I'm really glad an African-American pastor said it first and before me. So I could just chime in and say, yeah. I, I feel like the secular civil rights movement of the time doesn't have that note of forgiveness. You're demanding atonement and not granting forgiveness. Nobody's going to listen to you. If you come and scream at them and, and clearly show you're out for vengeance and you're just trying to take power away from them, they're going to they're gonna get together and they're going to find ways to just come back at you. This is not the way forward. So I really mourn the loss of the older uh, combination of we believe in sin, we're confronting sin and evil, we're going to demand justice, you know, put us in jail if you want. I mean, so they were, they were not, they weren't doing the kind of like, well, let's just sit down and talk. But at the same time, they were they, they, they had that note of great grace and forgiveness. So I I do mention that in the resurrection book, by the way. I talk about that. That there's some there's a there's a loss there that I, I but I feel like outsiders and as a white man, I'm not sure I can I don't want to critique Black Lives Matter too much I do know that there's a lot of Black Lives Matter. But I, I, I really do want to see African Americans yes. inside talking about the fact that that note of grace and forgiveness isn't there. And we, we've got to get that. Yeah, I want to uh, wrap up with just a little bit about how 
I mean, I um, preface this question or preface this statement um, by I watched a couple of nights ago um, Easter Parade with um, uh, Judy Garland and Fred Astaire, which is a wonderful uh, movie. And I love the music Easter Parade. It's one of my favorites. But I realized in my course of studying my own faith and reading books on resurrection and how important the resurrection of Jesus is, I felt I cringed at the trivialization of something um, like Easter, that there was just the only kind of reference to it being a, 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 a Christian event was at the end when they were all parading down Fifth Avenue in their bonnets and off of the background was St. Patrick's Cathedral, without the spires, by the way. Um, and what happened to us that we've become, that Easter became bunnies and chicks and jelly beans and new clothes instead of the resurrected savior. Well, it's it's uh, it's secular. It was a way of trying to keep the the, the festival and the holiday, but secularizing. Uh, it's it, an awful lot of our culture right now is trying to have Christianity without Christ. Trying to have um, you know a nice orderly society, everybody getting along nobody having any faith. I mean, to me, frankly, the current civil rights movement is a way of trying to, in a sense, have Christianity without Christ, demanding mm-hmm. justice but not offering forgiveness. And the, the Easter is a perfect example of it in a way, is uh, let's, let, let's celebrate spring. Let's celebrate flowers and bunnies and the sort of thing that happens at spring since Easter is celebrated spring. So let's not actually celebrate the resurrection, which is new life, life over death, uh, but let's celebrate the secular, uh, you might say, the uh, the analogy in the world is springtime. You know, there's the, after the death of winter, you know, the the, leaf, the the trees seem to come alive again. You know, they look like they were dead, and now they come alive. And bunny rabbits come out of their out of their hibernation and that sort of thing. So yeah. it's a way of trying to say, oh, let's get that good feeling without actually needing to talk about the Christian doctrine. The trouble is, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. You know, Paul says, then we are all, you know, we are most, basically everything I'm saying doesn't work. It means when you die, you rot. And after that, the sun will die and nothing anybody's ever done will even ever be remembered. I mean, it's nice to believe in springtime. But honestly, when you have pancreatic cancer, it's not enough. You need to believe in the real reality of Easter, not just the kind of nice feeling. And then just one last point, and I think this is really makes the point of the resurrection. And you've always talked about this because people have always said, you know, sort of when they confront Christianity is, I just want to believe in a God of love, you know, that just loves everybody, not a God of wrath or, you know, putting people in hell when they go, when they die or whatever. Um, but, and you, you've, you've talked about this, about it if, with, without, without, you know, if if all you have is God of love that just forgives everybody, you really don't have a God of justice either. And can you talk about that right. just to, you know, to sort of bring that back together sure. and wrap that up with the, with the idea of the resurrection? Well, yeah, because um, it's interesting. I would say 20 or, th- you know, Lauren, um, when we were in our, you know, young, when we were in our 20s um, and we were young, People said, I just believe in a God of love. I don't like that idea. You know, I don't believe in a God of judgment. You know, I believe God just accepts everybody. You know, people in their 20s now are not saying that. 
because justice is such a big deal to younger people that that I have not been hearing from younger people that oh, I like the idea of a God who never punishes anybody because they, they do know there's evil and injustice. So, so they're more ambivalent because they don't like the idea of a God who judges people. And on the other hand, they don't want a God who doesn't judge people. And what you have in <laughs> what, what you actually have here in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a way of saying on the one hand that, um, there is a way for mercy. Uh, and on the other hand, the people, that's the, the death of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you do have to accept that mercy. If you stay hard and, and all that, you, you, you can actually put yourself outside of God's mercy. And what that, so I, you know, try to say, does God judge people? Well, Romans one actually says God gives them up to what they want. And so I actually believe that since we do, when we mm. die, we do live forever. We have souls. That basically, if you say, I want a life without God, I want a life in which I'm in charge. Um, and I don't, I don't have anybody telling me how to live. I want to be my own, my own Lord. People like that over the years, I think, get more and more miserable. When they die, they keep on getting more and more miserable. They get exactly what they want. I, want, I don't want to get any more um, specific than that. But, but it's, what that means then is a lot of the a lot of the most evil and cruel people in the world are people who have actually sort of they're they're evil they've killed people they've they've taken power and I think the idea is they're usually are pretty miserable they're afraid they're always looking over their shoulder at everybody they do not have happy lives and when they die they keep on going in that direction and I think I think a lot of younger people actually say well okay there's a there's a god of judgment. And that's good. On the other hand, what about the rest of us? Because nobody's perfect. And the answer is throw yourself on God's mercy. And even though it feels like a death, there'll be a resurrection. Give up your rights to your own life. See, that really is the ultimate death. Jesus even talked about that. You know, you, you lose your life to find your life, he says. And what that means is, especially for modern young people, if you give yourself to the Lord and trust in his mercy, it feels like a death because they're like, oh, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. And yet, it'll lead to a resurrection. It'll lead to, uh, uh, to to a greater freedom. Because when you are living for yourself only, you end up becoming more and more miserable. And when you start living for God and other people, it, at first it looks like a death, but actually it leads to, it's really what you were built for. It leads to resurrection now and for eternity. I want to thank you so much. The book is called Hope in the Times of Fear. The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. Dr. Timothy Keller, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Um, I'm Lauren Green. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.